It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. My name is Daniil Hartman, and I'm the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute. Today is Wednesday, June 2nd, 2021, and this is For Heaven's Sake, a podcast from the Hartman Institute's I Engage Project. Our theme for today is anti-Semitism and the return of Jewish vulnerability in America. In each edition of For Heaven's Sake, Yossi Klein Halevi, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute here in Jerusalem and myself, will be discussing the current issue central to Israel and the Jewish people. And then Ilana Steinhain, director of the Hartman Faculty in North America, will join us and explore with us her thoughts on the issue. Let's begin. Of all the many concerns about the Jewish future, many of us took at least one aspect of Jewish life for granted, the safety and well-being of American Jewry. Over the last two generations, American Jews, the world's second largest Jewish community, succeeded in breaching the final boundaries of exclusion from the American mainstream. Anti-Semitism, for all its persistence on the edges of American life, seemed a vestige of a distant past. Polls regularly showed that Jews are America's most respected, even beloved minority. Judaism is mainstreamed in American culture, even at the highest levels of government. Barack Obama became the first president to hold an annual Seder in the White House. Donald Trump has Orthodox Jewish grandchildren. Joe Biden's children are married to Jews. And so is Kamala Harris. Even more importantly, in the current administration, being Jewish seemed to be a prerequisite. The Chief of Staff, Treasury Secretary, Secretary of Homeland Security, Secretary of State, Attorney General, Director of CDC, all of them are Jewish. That's pretty incredible. But now, anti-Semitism is back at the center of the American Jewish agenda and experience. The recent conflict in Gaza has been the pretext for physical assaults against Jews in New York and Los Angeles and elsewhere around the country. Synagogues have been vandalized, sounding more like European than American Jews. Some are afraid to display Jewish symbols publicly. What does this mean for the Jewish future? American Jews no different than most Jews and Jewish communities throughout our history? Or is the American Jewish story, despite the current wave of anti-Semitism, still the great exception in Jewish history? How should American Jews navigate the uncertainties? How to live simultaneously with vulnerability and success? Is anti-Zionism a cover for anti-Semitism or a threat of a different nature as yet unidentified? How to meet the threats from the far right and the far left effectively without engaging in apocalyptic scenarios. And how should we Israelis respond? 
What is a responsible Jewish response to this unsettling moment? Yossi, it's wonderful to be with you. This is a really tough one. This is a tough one, I know, I know. You know, during the last two sessions, we and much of the Jewish world were concentrating on Israel, the war, dangers facing Israeli citizens. It's an interesting um, paradox of Zionism uh, that it was supposed to provide safety for Jews. And in fact, those in Israel are often those who are, um, are those Jews under greatest danger. So we, we know how to talk about that. But in the midst of the war and under the umbrella of Israel's bombing of Gaza, a new danger to Jews has surfaced in North America. How real and how bad do you sense it is? Tell you a story. I, um, I was at a family wedding uh, a few nights ago. I'm, uh, I'm speaking to you from New York City. And it was a, uh, a wedding uh, from the Orthodox community, which is to say very big, very joyful. Looking around at all of these people who are visibly Jewish. These are people who walk the streets of Brooklyn and Queens and Manhattan as Jews. It's, if they were wearing neon signs saying, I'm a Jew, they couldn't be more visibly Jewish. There's no way to hide. You can't hide. And I'm looking around, and I felt something I've never felt before in my life. I felt afraid for them. I felt a sense of, of protectiveness. I felt that these people were, were so vulnerable. We in Israel, uh, we can protect ourselves. We know how to do that. But the spillover here is leaving these people vulnerable. I want to stop you a second, because uh, I asked you, how real and how bad do you sense it is? And the story you just told me is a story of your projection on them. My reaction was, was definitely subjective, but also based on conversations that I was having the whole night. People were coming up to me saying, you know, it's really hard in Israel, but, but we're really worried here. Uh, I'm worried about my kids being on the street. I'm getting emails from friends saying they're not letting their kids uh, go out on the street alone in, in a kippah. Something's changed. Whether whether the change is objectively real, which I which is really your question, or subjective, I think before we even get to that question, Danielle, we need to establish the fact that Jews are feeling deeply uneasy. I hear you. And and, and then we can unpack whether whether objectively uh, the situation really warrants that kind of, of fear that we're seeing. But, but I can tell you, in New York, the fear is real, and it's greater than any time that I, that I can So now, for our North American audience, your testimony will, will be just a reaffirmation. Um, it'll be interesting to hear whether people, whether people reaffirm it or not. You know, when I listen to you, um, the whole subject of, of this podcast is, is, is hard for me, and it's a little alien for me. Because I was raised never to think about anti-Semitism. I think I might have mentioned this in a podcast. I'm an anti-Semit. I was raised to be an anti-Semitism denier. 
I didn't want to say, I didn't say a Holocaust denier because that has <laughs> to be an anti-Semitism denier. And, and the reason for that is that very deep in my father's Torah, who was my teacher, was how do we bring Judaism out of the ghetto and engage it with the best of modern life? And as a result for my father, modernity was always the half full part of the cup. It was how could this help us rethink, create a revitalization? How do we, how do we leave um, an insulated tradition and create a new engagement between tradition and the modern world? And so if there was that anti-Semitism was always, if it was there, it was the exception to the rule. That was, okay, there's anti-Semitism. It's like, oh, it's anti-Semitism, but. It's anti-Semitism, but it's not so bad. Anti-Semitism, but it's not the rule. Anti-Semitism, but Jews are making too much about it. Anti-Semitism, but people are making a career out of it. Judaism is about Sinai. It's not about Auschwitz. It's about Sinai. It's about ideas. And, and, and anything that would get in the way of that um, just didn't, had no place. And so I come to this conversation. I don't, you've been thinking about anti-Semitism most of your life. Um, yeah, because I, I have the exact opposite upbringing that you did. My, my father was a survivor and, and he raised me with the expectation that what happened once not only can happen again, but will happen again. One of my challenges I find, Yossi, at this moment is that I'm feeling not just unprepared, but I feel that there's a reality um, as I too have heard people give expression to their fear, that I think there's a reality we can poo-poo, but I don't know if we know how to deal with it, Yossi. Because, you know, this is not, this is not the Holocaust. There's something going on that we have to give space to, but we have to understand it. Because, you know, this a favorite conversation is Jews talking about anti-Semitism. Like, I've never seen something more futile unto itself. But at the same time, though, I understand. And there's a difference between, there's, there's a difference between over-exaggerating, but at the same time, giving this an important space and asking ourselves, is there a Torah? Is there something that we want to learn? Is there something that we want to take? Or is it just recognizing the fear and that's okay too? Is, is there something more? But, but I know that I can't just, I can't just poo-poo. Um, I can't just say it's gone. So what I take from you, Danielle, is, is the need for caution in overstating the threat to the point where we become incapable of leading healthy, creative Jewish lives. I think that that is a crucial warning in this conversation. So let's let's put that on the table first of all. That that's a really important starting point. Beyond that, I want to slow the conversation down a little bit. We need to unpack what is this moment. Okay, is what is the nature of the threat? What I'm picking up from, from American Jews is a combination of what I would call Trumpism and Corbynism. But these are the two poles that define this moment. Trumpism is the mainstreaming 
of, of anti-Semitism, even if Trump himself, we can leave that whole question out. I personally don't believe Trump was an anti-Semite. It doesn't matter to me one way or the other. But he unquestionably legitimized certain uh, uh, ways of speaking about entire groups, which inevitably spilled over uh, into anti-Semitism. And uh, the Pittsburgh massacre and Poway and all of these expressions of far-right violence against Jews somehow is part of the Trump era. So when, you know, we used to talk about the far right versus the far left, I think that that's become a misnomer because what is happening in mainstream Republican circles is a radicalization, which even though it isn't explicitly anti-Semitic in many cases, it is in some cases, it almost doesn't matter because the culture is changing to the point where Jews feel unsafe for good reason. The left, Again, we, we, we naturally speak about the far left. And you did it in, in, when, in, in your opening remarks, the far left and the far right. I do it all the time, and I don't think it's accurate anymore. Because what, what Corbynism brought in England was the mainstreaming of anti-Zionism. Again, you know, whether, whether you want to make the case that anti-Zionism is directly anti-Semitism or not, doesn't matter because the, the result is the same as the result of Trumpism. So what you're saying is, if I understand you correctly, there's two things that you're saying. One is let's drop the term far. Yes. It belittles the reality and it also belittles, it, there's something more significant happening. Yes. There's another thing that I liked very much about what you said, is that I have, a lot of what I've heard is that we use this as a web partisan issue. It's almost as if we celebrate the anti-Semitism that's coming from the side that we reject. So when we, we were, we oh look, you know, this is another reason why the right is wrong or from the, or from the right, ah, I told you that there's a greater danger. It's just belittling a serious, a, a dangerous, but also a serious moment as if there's some competition you know, who's going to weigh there? Who, who's worse for the Jews? As if this is a relevant question. So I, I find that partisan discourse around anti-Semitism, frankly, aesthetically nauseating. So I really appreciate the, the symmetry that you're trying, that you are very, very careful to stake. For me, framing this moment between Trumpism and Corbynism, without personalizing, but just what those phenomena <laughs> represent, is also important in another way, which is it... it it circumvents the useless conversation. Was Trump anti-Semitic? Is anti-Zionism anti-Semitism? I don't care. The net result is that Jews are feeling threatened. Jews are feeling unsafe. You had almost 50% of British Jews saying that they would seriously consider emigrating if Corbyn became prime minister. Whether they would have or wouldn't have, it doesn't matter. Something is changing and there's a feeling that between these two movements of, I would say, corrupting mains, the mainstream right and the mainstream left, the coarsening of the mainstream left and the mainstream right, will inevitably spill over into, into Jewish unease. And there's one more point here, Daniil, which I think is really important about this moment. Uh, and that is that you can't relentlessly turn the world's only Jewish state into the world's worst criminal and not expect there to be violence against diaspora Jews. 
don't be surprised if pro-Palestinian demonstrators are going to say, well, wait a minute, that synagogue has an Israeli flag on the Bima. That's a, we're going to treat American Jews as an extension of, uh, of the Israeli war in Gaza. And so this spillover from the criminalization of Israel is turning into the criminalization of large parts of American Jewry. And, and worse than that, young American Jews especially are experiencing what I would call a return of the conditionality of acceptance in America. You are now in progressive spaces. You have to prove that you are worthy of belonging by repudiating Israel and Zionism. That's where, where, where this moment is leading, and it's very dangerous for American Jews. It's interesting, in your balance towards the end, a part of Yossi came out and it was talking about the, on the left, the, the balance got removed a little bit at, 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 the, at the end of your remarks, right? Because there is, no, and I appreciate that because the, the place that one anti-Semitism comes for you is more frightening than the other. Um, and, and it's almost as if you feel that the anti-Semitism on the left is more contagious. They're both the same. They might be now equal. They might be all as dangerous. One you see as more inherently or susceptible to be contagious in America. That's what I'm hearing from you. And I don't know if I agree or not, but, but I appreciate it. Look, I think that, that I'm, I'm reacting to this particular moment. To this moment. Pittsburgh was a moment. And I, I happen to have been in America when the Pittsburgh massacre happened. And that was a seminal experience for me because until then I had downplayed the far right threat. I didn't, I, I didn't take oh, a few Nazis, you know, even Charlottesville, didn't seem to me serious. And then Pittsburgh happened, and I realized that those people in the Jewish community who've been warning that there's a growing lethal threat from the far right were right, and, and I had ignored it. And so what I'm trying to put on the table now is not in place of a Jewish um, concern you with the far right. This moment, I, but let me, this I hear you, let me ask you, or let me, you spoke about Corbynism and how 50% of British Jewry said they would leave if he came into power. I don't think they would have, but, but, I, I, right. I, yeah, but, I agree. but it doesn't matter. But they even saying that, um, part of my experience, um, again, from, uh, from Israel, but as someone who's in contact with Jews all across America on an ongoing basis, even some of my best friends are American Jews. Uh, that was a joke. That was a joke. Yeah, that was. Yeah, that was. <laughs> I think I'm funny sometimes, <laughs> but <laughs> um, I don't think that's a reality in America. And I think I, I want to make a distinction. Many minority groups in America, and a, a part of the American experience, together with the wonders and opportunities of America are also fear and discrimination. There's a deep paradox in America. You almost have to learn how to live with both. Have to live with both. It's just, it's a given. If you're black, if you're Latino, if you're Asian, it's just part of your story and you know it. And you, you almost have to learn how to live with this dichotomy, almost this paradox as a part of your life. And you don't let them mix because they're, they're both there. Sometimes they come to a place that you can't 
balance them out anymore. One overrides. I think when my parents grew up in America, I think they were in a similar experience. They loved America and were frightened at the same time. They loved America, but knew they weren't going to get into various colleges or various clubs. Now, in my family's case, my father wanted to be a rabbi and, and he wanted to play stickball on the streets. So there wasn't a club that was going to keep him out. But um, it wasn't because he said, you can't play stickball with me. And no, 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 this is the, this is the wasp sewer. Danielle, aside from wanting to be a rabbi, that was my upbringing too. <laughs> I see. So like, it was just, you know, that was, they, that was there. But I think for the last 30, 40 years, something else has happened. And there was, there was less and less of this um, yes, but America is great, but. And Jews began to experience a, a remarkable moment. It, but it's rare in Jewish history, but I want to tell you it's also rare for any minority. And maybe part of what we're coming back to is not an existential transformation of American Jewish life, but a return of the Jewish community from almost this very strange place where here's this small little minority, which is a more respected religion, not amongst Hadassah women, but amongst evangelicals and based, like where there was almost this golden era, which couldn't last. And maybe part of what we need to learn how to do is to get back to a normal mode of existence. That's right, a certain amount of fear, a certain amount of, of, of uncomfortableness is gonna be there. You're two and a half percent of a country and people, by nature, always single out minorities. And you're going to suffer from it too. And the fact that, that you had so much comfort, it was almost like, if, if that's the standard, it's unsustainable. It's very similar here in Israel. My experience here in Israel is that somebody wants to kill me. I live with that consciousness on an ongoing basis. And I'm aware of it. I'm aware of it. Somebody wants to kill me. I know it. And someone could want to kill my children and my grandchildren. And I'm aware, I, I know that. But it doesn't mean that I don't feel free and alive and excited. Maybe the challenge of this time, and this is where it gets really important, because if we overstate it, we're, we're not going to realize that we've just come back. We're now normal. We had 30, 40 years of, of, of abnormality. And coming back to it is going to demand of us to ask, okay, how do you function in the midst of that fear? And I would tell you, Yossi, going back to the challenge that I learned from my father, I'm not sure all of that fear is negative. You know, the, the definition of good anti-Semitism is, is, you know, where Jews don't die. You know, I don't want anybody to die. I don't want anybody to die. I don't want anybody to be, to be beaten up. But I don't know if, if there isn't a Torah and a way in which we grow as a people at the midst of this moment. But before, does that make sense to you, Yossi? Look, I, I think it's a really important point, but the the difficulty of this moment, and I and I feel it too, as as a former American Jew who has kept very deep relationships with the community. What's so painful, wrenching about this moment, is that we have had two generations of of a golden era, as you put it. You see, it's it's not two. There was only one. It's our kids. You already did it. You didn't, you didn't grow up that way. It was no, one generation. I, I did, it was you know, generation. It's a half a generation because I, in my generation already, look, my wife is a convert to Judaism. I talked about one half of my family, which is Orthodox. The other half of my family is Episcopalian. And that's a reflection 
of the of the America that I didn't grow up in as a child, but that I came of age in, in, in the late 70s and early 80s. And, and I love that America. And I can't give that up. And I, even as an Israeli, I, I, I refuse to give up the, the decent America that, that has allowed not only Israel to thrive, but simultaneously the emergence of the most self-confident, successful diaspora in, in Jewish history. I'm not ready to give that up. But I, you know, listening to Danielle, I'm thinking that there's something here that reminds me emotionally. That's the only comparison that I'm, I'm making now between the Six Day War and the Yom Kippur War. After the Six Day War, Israelis felt that's it, we won the happy ending of Jewish history. And the Yom Kippur War was the rude awakening. Oh, we're, st we're, still, we're still in Jewish history. Maybe emotionally something of the shock. And, you know, I was a student uh, in Israel uh, during the Yom Kippur War. I was on the one-year program at Hebrew U. And I saw the instant emotional transformation. And I'm feeling something of that moment you know, this, this might be a good place to stop for a moment and invite in Ilana, because I want to, it's on this one, your comparison of, of the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War are, are help, help me understand a point that I was trying to make and give me a way to say it. I love the Six-Day War and I would never give it up, but it was also the seed of unbelievable arrogance, thoughtlessness. The, the pain of the Yom Kippur War is what led Israeli society to begin to ask itself, who are we and who, who should we be? There's a great rabbinic saying, which says, when difficulty confronts you, look inwards and check your behavior. Not saying that you caused it. That's but, a really crucial point. When yeah. you feel a little unstable, that maybe you start asking questions about who am I? Why is Judaism important? Who do I want to be? What's my role in life? What's my role in society? What's my role in America? What's my role in the world? You know, it's comfort, unfortunately, in the human condition, um, breeds mediocrity. And maybe one of the great secrets to Jewish overachieving is that we weren't comfortable. And I know I'm not a masochist. And I don't want to celebrate this. And I wish that we could, just like I wish that in Israel we didn't have a Yom Kippur war. But, but maybe one of the great tragedies of the human condition is that we underachieve um, mm -hmm. until we are a little more uncomfortable. And as long as we don't over, you know, because we could suffer, we could wallow in this forever. And it could become the end unto itself. Right. But if we connect to it in a healthy manner, maybe we maybe we could grow. I'm sensing, Yossi, that there's something more that you want to say before I turn No, only, only that uh, Jews are well-practiced in, uh, in extracting the good from, from difficulty, you know? And when we say, this is also for the good, but, uh, it's, it's a sobering point that but perhaps this is a moment uh, when the American Jewish community is going to grow going to take the next step. I think that's what Maybe you're Maybe that the about. question is whether we can, whether we're going to be shocked into inactivity and mourning and, and, and overstatements, or are we going to be catalyzed into something? Let's, uh, let's take a short break. <laughs> 
And when we return, Ilana Steinhain will join us. Hi, I'm Rabbi Lauren Birkin, Vice President of Rabbinic Initiatives at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. Even in the most challenging times for the Jewish people, scholars at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Israel and North America push themselves to think about what could be and to focus on a Torah of possibility. That's why we're so excited to announce that registration for our virtual summer symposium is now open. Over two weeks from July 5th to July 15th, we'll be running public lectures, small seminars, and lots of opportunities for conversation, exploring possible futures for Israel and the diaspora, Zionism, and Jewish identity. Featuring top scholars like Daniel Hartman, Yehuda Kurtzer, Michal Biton, Rachel Korazim, and Yossi Klein-Halevi. You can register today free of charge at summer.hartman.org.il. Ilana, hi, it's great to be with you. Yossi um, feels he's American at this moment, but you're really American. <laughs> it's like I sometimes feel like is Yossi having, you know, <laughs> like the, 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 American, the, Israeli, the American tourist who comes to Israel and wears a uniform there in the army. <laughs> I'm wondering whether, whether we even know what we're talking about or not. Um, Ilana, um, where does this whole conversation meet you? Yeah, I mean, there, there is no one way to look at it, right? And you're refracting it through your Israeli lenses and your partially American or Canadian lenses. And I'm refracting it through my particular American lens, which intersects, it's New York, it's highly affiliated, it's visibly Jewish. It's, you know, it's a lot of things from, from my nose to my kids keep us, you know, like highly, highly visibly Jewish. Um, I think, I want to agree with you on one thing and I want to disagree with you on one thing. Uh, the conversation, I think getting to a point where we say, actually the, the, the normal experience, the usual default experience of a minority is to experience some incidents of hatred, discomfort. It's not always going to be comfortable, right? And it's not just minorities, you know, as you said, Danielle, in Israel, you experience it too, right? It's not just about being a minority. It's, there are people who don't like you. <laughs> like, that's just part of it. But where I disagree with you is in already turning to the question of, is this a catalyst for achievement for the Jews in America? Because Jews in America have achieved a lot. We are achieving a lot. It's not like we're underachievers and we need this discomfort to make us achieve. You can argue something about identity, will this strengthen identity? But I actually think the worry here right now is whether this is gonna go from what we would call incidents, intifada, if you would call it in, in the language that you expect, where a random person kicks you on the street, a random person attacks and throws an, a, a bomb at you in Times Square, random, lone wolves, or if this is gonna become structural. And I think where the conversation about anti-Zionism comes in is where there is actually a structural attempt to alienate Jews, to kick Jews out on account of Israel. That is a structural issue akin to racism. 
And that to me is a question about the soul of America. Can America actually enfranchise those who have been structurally oppressed, namely communities of color, without starting to structurally oppress Jews because of Israel? And I think that's a huge thing that I want to start with. And I want to say one thing personally, which is the cognitive dissonance of being a proud American Jew right now is absolutely, um, it's real, it's shocking. A few years ago, when there was a swastika painted a few blocks from my house, and it was white supremacists that I was afraid of, I had my kids tuck in their fringes, their tzitzit, and I had them wear hats over their kipot, or instead of their kipot, their skull caps on the street. Because I said, you know what? It's these people who don't like us. Just, you know, don't, don't give them a reason to, to beat you up. And now that I see that what everybody's been saying, which is there's no such thing as violence on the left, it's only violence from the right. The left may try to undermine you, but they're not gonna. And now it's violence from both. I said to my kids, you wear those fringes out. You wear your kippah out because you know what? If America doesn't want you, then America's not America. And if you can't be proud of your identity, walking on the streets of America, of New York, where can you be proud of your identity? Right, so to me, this, this is a question of Jews being proud of their identity. It's a question of what America is, and it's not just a question about incidents, because incidents I can live with. It's the structural stuff that scares the daylights out of me. And the conversation about Zionism and anti-Zionism is exactly where this question sits. I wanna spend a whole podcast on the relationship between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. I, I think we have to delve much more deeply into it and ask about that. Um, so I wanna concentrate Ilana, on, on the issue of structure that you're putting forward, the structural as distinct from the incident. And I appreciate it very, very much. It's, uh, it's, it's really interesting that you're almost acting in my terms as an Israeli. You know, when, when, when it's episodical, then you, could, then you could afford to be afraid. When it's structural, now you have to stand up and fight for your place. Um, but 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 who said that you're immune? That you should be immune from racism? Maybe that's you know that's part of the story. And by the way, that's part of the American story. It's part of every society's story. And uh, when I hear your indignation, that's exactly we have to fight. It, this has to be uprooted. But the sense of shock as if the only thing that I could expect is the episodical. Why? Why is that? Why is the structural abnormal? Why can't the structural also be normal? And it's one that we Jews have experienced all along. And nobody said that you're not, that you've underachieved. The question is not whether you've underachieved. The question is whether at certain moments could be catalysts for greater achievement. But that doesn't mean, that's what, the, when the rabbis say, check your behavior, they're not saying that before and you didn't check. They say, use this. Use hardship as a vehicle for, for pushing yourself even forward. Does you that know, I, I, I think I think that that what's unbearable about this moment is that the very forces on the left that are justifiably focusing on the structural uh, the structural nature of racism in America now being the, ca the carrier of, of 
creating a recreating a structural anti-Jewishness in America uh, in the name of fighting structural racism. This, I think, is what's so galling for so many American Jews. So is thank you for that mean, way, that but I want to speak as an American Jew for a second because I am one. Um, and I'm actually, you know, like seeing this and feeling this, is that I, you know, Danielle, you and I know each other for a long time. And you know that I think anti-Semitism is endemic to the Jewish experience uh, in non-Messianic times. And we once had this conversation, and I know it sounds very negative, and it's, but I'm a believer in the Galut Geula paradigm. And for those who are want to know what that is, the exile versus redemption paradigm. And I don't think we're in a time of redemption. Anti-Semitism doesn't shock me. I think it's it's in my theology. It's in my philosophy. Like it, don't like it. It's part of my theology. At the same time, we're watching a slow train wreck of America, right? Meaning in the name of something that is beautiful and fantastic, which is actually making sure that people have their rights structurally, what's happening is that Jews are becoming the bad guy. And that's that, that question of can you actually have a movement that reckons with injustice, that doesn't perpetrate further injustice, that to me is a vexing human question. It is a vexing human question. So yeah, there's the Jewish issue which doesn't shock me so much, but there's also the perennial human moral issue, which Jews should be thinking about for ourselves as well. Can you try to fight injustice without causing new injustices? Okay, so that's the challenge of his time, Ilana. That's, that's, that's a model for um, when you encounter difficulties, what do you need to do? And you're now saying, okay, Truth is, you're saying, you know, what you what you just discovered, Daniel, that he, I, I've been telling you for years and you couldn't hear me. That's, I know, that's what you were just telling me, and I heard you. And it's not true. in so many words. I mean, it's, it's not so in so many, many words, it. I know, because I'm but the you boss, got it. so you have to say it. But you're saying, Daniel, you dilute this. Daniel, this is just there, whether you like it or not, it's not, it's there. So I'm saying, okay, I hear you, Ilana, and I'm waking up. I accept it. Uh, but now I'm turning back and saying, what do we do? And maybe the question you've just raising is a perfect example. How do we use this to fight for America? How do we use this to fight for uh, a vision of what our society should be like? Um, and again, just like I in Israel, when uh, there were these recent horrific demonstrations and attacks on Jews um, and also vice versa on Arabs, but, but predominantly um, by Arab mobs against Jews. I could get up and say, you know, I could be angry and indignant, and I am, was angry, and all of the above, but part of me asks, okay, what is the type of Israel I want to live in? And maybe if the Jewish community asks your question, Ilana, we could, this moment could be a catalyst for, again, a type of overachievement, and maybe something that happens when you're, when you're coming, you don't ask those questions, and now maybe our, we're invested in it on another level. And, and we see something on another level. And I know it's bad. And I know you're never supposed to say this to somebody in the midst of their suffering. And you're not supposed to tell somebody else to do this. Because the, the story is not, if you see somebody else suffering, tell them that they should examine their, their actions. That's not the, the, the source says, 
if you see suffering coming upon yourself, you're supposed to investigate. If, it has to be a personal thing. And so when somebody else tells it to somebody, there's something crude about it. And, and I want to apologize if it sounded that way. It was no, more I, self-reflection on, on no, that I, this is I, what we've always done. I want to say, I want to say one more thing, which is I think there's a lot of self-reflection going on. And I'm pretty uncomfortable with some of that self-reflection, which apologizes essentially for, oh, I'm so sorry that I have a relationship to Israel. I'm so sorry. I mean, Israel's really, I'm going to be cheeky. That's a lot of introspection too. I think that's very scary and dangerous. Ilana, could you explain a little more? Because I didn't understand it completely. Oh, sure. I I mean, we don't want to do anti-Zionism, anti-Judaism right now, but. But just use it as an example. Sure. I would say without calling out individual people. Call them out, Eli. Let's call and them out. I'm a little <laughs> careful about this that. This is your moment. Call them I, out. I don't know if that makes it my moment, but what I would say is there's such a, a sense of we are so sorry for the evils that Israel perpetrates. And so our response to getting kicked in the head is thank you so much for telling us that we deserve to get kicked in the head. Or the same people who are apologizing, I'm so sorry for Israel because it's a colonial state and it's a settler state, are now saying, but please protect us from anti-Semitism. You know, these things, these things are not unrelated conversations. And I'm very troubled by speaking out of both sides of the mouth, which is why I'm asking, can we undo injustice without perpetuating new injustice? And I don't know what the answer is to it. But the second thing that I want to say is that I'm always in favor of the people who are trying to build bridges, whether it's trying to build bridges in Israel or trying to build bridges in America. I don't think the answer is, ah, you see, they hate us. Let's go into our bunker and let's fight them all. I don't think that's the answer. In fact, that's not the answer for a minority that has power. It's not the answer, right? It's the, the answer for a minority that has power is, how can we build bridges? How can we actually work with people who look at us and see the devil and say, can you see something else? Is there something else here? Can we hear each other's stories? That It's not just that I'm comfortable with that. I think that's actually the only way forward besides for making sure that you keep yourself physically safe, right? So I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you. It's just the question of what reflection is. I don't want Jews you know, beating their chests high holiday style saying, we're so sorry for Israel. We're so sorry for Israel. Please don't hit us. We're so sorry for Israel. I want you saying, we're proud of who we are. We have a different story. Let's try to build bridges. Let's talk about it. And some people won't be willing to build bridges and some people will. Alana, it's building bridges while at the same time figuring out an active strategy of, uh, of how to cope, how to deal with this. Of course. Both. You have to do both. I want us to talk further about the relationship between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism and what Ilana, you spoke to about how it becomes a, uh, a, an endemic or a, uh, a structural problem. And, and, and I, I want to go into a more deeper conversation about that in a future podcast. I, I also want us to think about, and this is another issue, um, what do you do about it? And that's where you're challenging us at the end. And is there a difference of what you do when you encounter anti-Semitism from the, from the right, or when, when you're encountering anti-Semitism from the left, is there a different methodology? You even said with your children, one of them I told you to hide, and the other one I told you to go out there. But but is there something, is there a different responsibility? These are all, I, I would say, 
what, what I'm asking for, and I'd like our audience to think about it, is what's the Torah? What's the Sinai that we want to emerge at this moment? What do we want to learn from this? Where do we want to go? And then also, how do we want to grow? Thank you, Yossi. Thank you, Ilana. Um, let's give our ending commercial of For Heaven's Sake is a product of the Shulkin Martin Institute. It was produced by David Svi Kelman and edited by Tali Cohen and music is provided by SoCal. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show. You can write to us at for heaven's sake at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are available. Be safe. We know it's a difficult time.